helping the acquisition workforce maintain a decisive edge. This is the Defense Acquisition University Podcast. Welcome back, friends. This is Anthony Rotolo for DAU Podcast, and I'm excited to bring you another installment in our continuing series about the DOD JADF Task Force response to COVID-19. One of the figures who played a role in the Joint Acquisition Task Force, and my guest today is Major General Cameron Holt. Major General Holt is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Contracting, Office of the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics, Washington, D.C. He is responsible for all aspects of contracting related to the acquisition of weapon systems, logistics, and operational support for the Air Force, and provides contingency contracting support to the geographic combatant commanders. He leads a highly skilled staff of mission-focused business leaders, supporting warfighters through $825 billion of space, global power reach, and information dominance programs. He also oversees the training, organizing, and equipping of a workforce of some 8,000 contracting professionals who execute programs worth more than $65 billion annually. Major General Holt, welcome. Well, thank you, Anthony. Very happy to have you with us today. Again, we're continuing in our discussion about the task force response to COVID-19. Very exciting story. How did you become a part of the JADF? Well, actually, Anthony, I think that uh, that the JADF stand-up and the Air Force's task force stand-up happened around the same time, uh, which was actually very interesting that uh, both the DOD level and the Air Force level recognized immediately that this was uh, going to be a whole-of-nation response that DOD was going to have to play a big part in. My boss, Dr. Roper, in March, it seems like eons ago, uh, it was only eight months ago, but he uh, tapped me on the shoulder to stand up an Air Force-wide task force, which uh, became known as the Department of the Air Force Acquisition COVID-19 Task Force, or DAF Act. And immediately as we stood up that DAF Act, and I'll, I'll explain uh, its contents to you through the questions, but my boss wanted me to stand up a response effort so that the Air Force could lend its support both to DOD and to FEMA and DHHS by using literally the entire capacity and capability of Air Force acquisition worldwide. And so I was literally in my living room when I got that call. It was the first day that we were staying at home. And uh, I couldn't VPN in because all of the systems were overloaded. And so we literally stood up a task force in 48 hours out of an iPhone 6. And somewhere during that process, I learned that the JADF at the OSD level was standing up as well, and that Stacey Cummings would be leading that. And then so the Air Force asked me to be the primary Air Force lead in working with the JADF and then responding for whatever efforts the Air Force needed to support both the JADF and FEMA and DHHS. Major General Holt, what were you doing for the department before the coronavirus pandemic came upon us? Yeah, so thanks, Anthony, for the question. Um, as your intro pointed out, I'm the head of contracting for the Air Force. Uh, and I work directly for Dr. Roper, who is the head of acquisition for the Air Force. And I'll, I'll tell you, the events leading up to this could not have been more fortuitous. 
Because in 2019, Dr. Roper leading Air Force acquisition and myself leading Air Force contracting, we set about rigging for speed is the way I would say it. Uh, Now, of course, we thought that we were rigging for speed because of the national defense strategy and the threats that are posed by China and Russia in great power competition. And I think we all recognize the need to move much faster in DOD acquisition uh, in general. But during 2019, we took some very concrete steps in Air Force acquisition and in contracting that we didn't know it at the time, but set the Air Force up very well to respond to this national emergency in supporting the JADF and uh, DHHS and FEMA and others. Some good examples of that in 2019, Dr. Roper was able to reset a lot of the culture in our program management to where we question literally every, every requirement every regulation. And in doing that, we chopped out, in Air Force acquisition, we chopped out a cumulative 113.25 years of acquisition time that we took out of the system and out of the schedules of our weapon systems by thinking innovatively. On the contracting side, I engaged our workforce in something called Operation Clean Sweep where we literally deleted about 700 pages of mandatory procedures and regulations within the Air Force contracting business. We cut two layers of authority out of contracting and delegated authority all the way to the tactical edge, increasing our contracting officers' authority to make decisions on their own by up to 10 times. And so that culture, what I call mission-focused business leadership, where we really have our eyes on the mission and we stop worrying about the D.C. recrimination culture and whether we lose a protest and really focus our energies back on why we're doing what we're doing, which is the mission. So we thought we were preparing uh, uh, only for great power competition. But as it turned out, uh, fortuitously, as, as we stood up the Air Force Task Force in support of uh, the JADF, it turned out that we were able to do a lot of great work and a lot of great contracting, not just for the DOD, but for the whole federal government in response to this national emergency. You had no idea what was about to come upon you, but you had just leaned everything out. Sounds like a lot of red tape removed, a lot of empowerment in decision making, and you created faster pathways for acquisition and just in time for this crisis. Absolutely. And and really, the biggest game changer beyond the mechanical things we changed was the culture. And we really developed a culture throughout Air Force acquisition and contracting that doesn't ask why, but asks why not, and really gets after it. We went from risk averse to risk taking, I would say, for the benefit of the mission. It sounds like you assumed a less defensive posture, a more offensive posture, much more proactive in addition to all of that. So that only helped increase the rapidity with which you could do all that you had to do for COVID. It did. Um, We also created some very innovative tools that lower the barriers to entry into the defense contracting to include uh, Air Force pitch days and contracting sprints where we award literally hundreds of contracts in a week. And a lot of hard work goes into that. It's not just a week, but uh, to the industry, it looks as fast and as common sense as any commercial business out there. And so some of those tools to include commercial solutions opening is a tool that we developed in 2019. And all of those tools also came together to support the need of the nation during the COVID response. That's a very good point, because from an external perspective, 
we're always hearing about how the DOD is so slow, but you're saying that now partners out there are working with a fast-moving partner, and it's the DOD. So that's really remarkable. Yeah, absolutely, Anthony. In our first pitch day in Times Square, one of the contractors who had received an award literally three minutes after their pitch to us, they stood on the stage in front of a bunch of venture capitalists and, and a big audience and said, you know, I heard it was hard to do business with the government, but I got to tell you, it's faster to get an Air Force contract than it is to get a beer in New York City. Ah, that's something. In previous interviews, I have asked everyone how the call for volunteers found you. In some cases, it was Ms. Cummings dialing the phone and and getting everyone directly. Was that your case? Actually, no, Anthony. We were uh, in the Air Force. We had decided to stand up our own acquisition task force anyway, without really knowing yet how the OSD level would be organized. So it all kind of happened around the same time. But it was fortunate because in the DAF Act, my task force that I run in Air Force acquisition, there's about 540 individuals across the Air Force supporting it across four lines of effort. And when the call came in from OSD that they were standing up the JADF and they needed some support for people to help them at their level with uh, being product leads or admin type support, we uh, we just handled that in stride with the rest of our task force set up. And I think we offered up a, a couple of really good officers to help the JADF run their processes at that level. Now, one of the themes that's been coming out is this interdependency. To what extent would you say did the JADF rely on support from the services across the military? Well, I think uh, I think the JADF um, almost exclusively relied on the services and defense agencies to do the actual acquisition work. So at the JADF level, they had product leads that were stood up, which was very helpful for communicating with the interagency because. If they were to try to communicate directly with all of the acquisition program offices that we had engaged across the Department of the Air Force simultaneously, we would quickly overwhelm both FEMA and DHHS in that communication. So the product leads served a good function in the JADF where we could uh, make sure that they were aware of all of the acquisition status and, and the acquisition that we were doing. We also provided those uh, product leads and the JADF uh, with a lot of proactive recommendations to bring forward to DHHS and FEMA as we supported the fight. But you had each of the services and agencies before the coronavirus hit, each of our acquisition functions really have unique attributes and strengths and weaknesses. And over time, I think it was very good how all of those strengths came together. So, for example, Defense Logistics Agency, they already have habitual relationships with FEMA and already buy massive amounts of medical supplies from the existing supply chains. And then you have the Army, uh, the uh, Joint PEO Office for Cyberni, and they do a lot of work already, habitual work already with the uh, FDA and the medical community. The Air Force, interestingly, the Air Force although we do support uh, the Defense Health Agency with category management and enterprise sourcing techniques uh, during peacetime, I'll call it, uh, we didn't have a lot of experience with the medical industry and medical supply chains. But what the Air Force does bring to the table 
is one, innovation, fast contracting, and the ability to rapidly scale solutions and supply chain analysis. And so we became very quick studies of the medical industry and the medical supply chains. And we stood up a, a market intel cell and we had deep dives a couple of times a week initially. And then every Saturday for several hours where we would go deep into the medical industry and understand all the different supply chains and the way they're put together. And then we used our rapid acquisition tools and people across uh, the Air Force to really change the game quickly in the speed. But we did not try to compete with the uh, strengths of the other services or agencies. We, for example, were not advocating that the Air Force be chosen to buy a lot of the big medical supplies from existing supply chains because DLA is already uh, much better at that. But we are very, very good at developing new sources of supply and orthogonal supply chains that do not compete with the supply chains that exist or the capacity of existing contractors. And so that's what we're really good at. And we put that to good use, I feel like. Yeah. So with an awareness of your strengths and limitations, you could identify the right entities to attack certain problems. And it sounds like you were applying all this acquisition know-how, but it was also just a matter of, like you said, learning all about the medical industry so that you could then more astutely apply these acquisition pathways to either creating or acquiring the equipment. Major General Holt, can you describe what those relationships with interagency partners like HHS and FEMA looked like prior to the outbreak? Yeah, I, as, I, uh, as I said, Anthony, the Air Force in particular did not have a lot of habitual relationships with DHHS. And so in the early running, we were pretty heavily reliant upon the JADF structure and the JADF product leads who were communicating with DHHS on our behalf as we were doing some of these early acquisition efforts. With FEMA, the Air Force does have habitual relationships, but only insofar as it comes to responding to what I would call regional natural disasters. And this posed a much bigger problem for FEMA, where they had not just one region of FEMA involved, but every region of FEMA involved. And so the communications challenges up front became really stark. And, uh, and the JADF was the DOD solution to try to um, organize that in a, a helpful way. So as the fight moved on through the months, I think the capacity for both the JAV and for FEMA and ES start commuting more with the acquisition offices that were actually executing the acquisitions in the Air Force, Army, and DLA principally um, uh, got a little bit better in a way that we didn't overwhelm them. So as I said early on, uh, there was a lot of what I would call constrained communications, but from a strategic perspective, that was probably the right thing because we didn't want to overwhelm DHHS and FEMA. So a lot of the communication that, that came up from the Air Force on the status of our acquisitions uh, went through the JADF to DHHS and FEMA. As the months wore on, however, I think there were some folks in the JADF to include Steve Morani, who understood kind of what we were doing in the Air Force and brought us into conversations strategically with DHHS and FEMA. And at that point, things started to accelerate very well. So communications prior, if we ever, you know, get together a lessons learned, 
Uh, my put would be that uh, we need to develop those relationships and those communications even before the emergency hits, just like we do with FEMA for regional natural disasters, and maybe even exercise the ability to support DHHS and develop those relationships, not just at the JADF level with the DOD, but having the DHHS and others understand the individual capabilities of Air Force and Army and DLA and others. Yeah, and you're echoing the sentiment of others who I've interviewed, and I believe the the structure that is helping with that is organizing some of this as cells so that you have standing relationships so that should another crisis hit, you're not inventing the wheel from scratch. You have that in place already. Is that a correct way to describe it? Yes. And I would actually go so far as to do exercises where that that involves not just the DOD level, but the actual uh, acquisition offices that do the execution in the services and agencies. I think we've we've learned that lesson uh, when we do NORTHCOM support of FEMA and the various services and agencies that provide uh, support to NORTHCOM, for example, would be a part of those exercises. And in much the same way, I think we should do the same for DHHS support scenarios, as well as other support scenarios that we may not want to think about, like um, Department of Energy, for example, or other agencies of the federal government who may have to take lead in a broader perspective of national security events that could happen. Now, how did you ensure that you were moving along rapidly with this interagency, interdepartmental dynamic, uh, given the remote challenge? Yeah, you know, that was surprising, Anthony. The The remote challenge, uh, we adapted so well to that. I think across the department, we adapted so well to that. I think if you were to say before this ever happened that we would have to, on in a single day, decide we were going to go to all virtual operations, I, I think you would get more than a few chuckles about that. But frankly, that was not the issue at all. Now, the issue wound up being more so in the serial nature of communications rather than simultaneous or parallel communications. Um, and, and so early on, the, the communications were a challenge, I would say. And also, I think there was a challenge from the perspective that DHHS and FEMA initially, as they're, you know, very good agencies and they're very capable in their own missions, tried to go it alone in a lot of ways that, frankly, they were just not manned and prepared to do. And so the fact that the JADF stood up and that you had the big pipes of all the services acquisition arms ready to go, once they understood that this emergency was going to be well beyond the capabilities from an acquisition perspective, either in DHHS or in FEMA, I think that that things moved much faster after that realization was very clear. That necessity of working together became clear, and you've just, uh, it sounds like everyone adapted to the, the remote aspect of communicating. Yeah, and then for our part in the Air Force, we stood up this task force in the Air Force in much the same way that I would stand up a task force for wartime contracting on a battlefield. And in fact, that is the exact analogy that I used for my own folks to put us on a very urgent footing. And and the way I kind of described it to folks beyond setting up our task force in the Air Force, 
using lines of effort and horizontal communications and a lot of simultaneity of operations. The way I described it to them was that we are actually converting into a wartime scenario by the by standing up the Air Force Task Force in support of the DOD Task Force, JADF Task Force. And as we did that, what I tried to help them understand is most of the time when we deploy uh, to a far off land, the threat that is faced by America is over there. In this particular national emergency, the threat is in our neighborhoods and in our schools and down the street and in our families. And from an Air Force Task Force perspective, we took that very personally. And we all committed to each other that we would be urgent no matter what the cost. And so probably in the early running, you saw that even the JADF was a little bit uh, like, hey, let's wait and see, uh, Air Force. Don't go, you know, just hang on while they establish the good communications with DHHS and FEMA. But frankly, our folks across the entire Air Force were like a, a horse pulling at the bridle. We were ready to go. And once we got some uh, some clear decisions and some clear acquisitions to go off and work and the money to work them, we were a house of fire and we moved out really quickly and then coordinated with the JADF on all of our activities. Oh, that's very insightful, very interesting. That war posture or footing really explains a lot how the whole approach and uh, having things moving in parallel Major General Holt, can you discuss support from the Air Force in particular? I sure can. So uh, I'll, I'll give you an idea of how we set up our the construct of our um, DAF Act or Department of the Air Force Acquisition COVID-19 Task Force. So we stood up four lines of effort. The first one we called relief. And that line of effort was led by a tier two SES that is a, a contracting expert and that relief line of effort was going to be putting the entire capacity and capability of Air Force acquisition across the globe in support of DHHS and FEMA. And so all of the interagency work was going to be done by LOE-1 relief. LOE-2 was called resilience. And in our resilience line of effort, the Air Force is the executive agent for Defense Production Act Title III acquisition execution on behalf of the whole Department of Defense. And we knew that there would be uh, a significant amount of dollars added to Defense Production Act Title III execution in the CARES Act, both in response to medical capacity expansion and reshoring on U.S. soil and response to elements and capabilities within the defense industrial base that were threatened by COVID-19. And so LOE2 was stood up for to develop that resilience, both medically and defense-wise. In line of effort three, line of effort three was recovery. And line of effort three was predominantly inwardly focused towards the Air Force in watching all of our Air Force programs for impacts and assessing the financial health of over 1,400 separate companies, which we did very methodically, and uh, making sure that we write contracting policies and help DOD write contracting policies that maximize all the contingency contracting emergency authorities that, that had been authorized for use. And in that effort, we accelerated uh, the payment process and, and financing terms for 
literally thousands of contracts across the Air Force. We accelerated the award of some $3.9 billion worth of contracts to provide added revenue sooner for a lot of threatened companies. And for a couple of companies that were really exposed to the commercial air downturn, we actually had to do some very interesting policy issues very quickly to include a federal acquisition regulation deviation that would allow us to execute advance payments in exchange for letters of credit so that some threatened companies could continue to keep their cash flow going and could make sure their supply chain was healthy as well. And so a lot of that work was done in LOE 3, recovery. And then LOE 4 is called rapid. And uh, this was our AFWorks team that prior to the the COVID-19 emergency had done a lot of groundbreaking work, including pitch days and contracting sprints and commercial solutions opening to lower the barriers to entry for a lot of commercial and dual-use tech in support of Air Force and Space Force capabilities in response to great power competition. And so they became line of effort four uh, and were attached to my task force. And all of those tools and innovation were then applied to the medical marketplace. And so we opened up a a portal that initially was the DAF Act or Air Force Task Force Portal. But rapidly, uh, once the JADF uh, understood its capabilities, they adopted it as the JADF portal. And then eventually, uh, even the national authorities in DHHS and FEMA, once they understood our tool set, uh, they actually asked us to make it the national portal. And so the Air Force literally became what I would call the front door uh, nationally for like over 3,700 separate companies were coming to us in our portal that we created. And then we were allowing that information to flow throughout the the, uh, federal government. That's astounding. So that was relief, resilience, recovery, and rapid. It's really striking how much you did to ensure the health and ability to continue to operate of your private sector partners. Yeah, absolutely. And and the results were, uh, I mean, obviously speak for themselves, but I can give you a, a few statistics that just sure uh, just give you an idea in in literally in weeks in total the Air Force Task Force spent 5.1 billion dollars and about 2 billion of that in direct support of the JADF who was supporting the DHHS and FEMA but as far as uh, the medical industry in the United States the Air Force uh, executed contracts totaling 854 million dollars and some of the results are really amazing from that work. And these are really tough negotiations, by the way. Uh, each one of them had their own flavor to them, and, and, and some of them actually pretty comical. But as far as masks go, the task force was able to increase the production on U.S. soil of masks by 69.5 million masks per month. For surgical masks, we increased the capacity up by 8.3 million per month. Nasal swabs, we did a couple of uh, industry capacity expansion efforts there in support of the JADA and raised the capacity of a little company called Puritan in Maine by over 219 million swabs per month. And again, this is all happening in just a matter of weeks. Test kits up by 16.9 million per month. Gloves 
up by 37.5 million per month. Ventilator filters uh, up by 650,000 per month, all on U.S. soil. Filter media, enough filter media to, to do 110 million uh, N95 masks in a year more. And then in syringes for vaccines, we increased the capacity on U.S. soil down in South Carolina up by 45 million per month. And so incredible efforts there. And then on the Defense Production Act side, in response to keeping the capabilities that we need that were affected by COVID-19, we've awarded over $700 million in the same time frame. And as I speak right now, we're engaged in even more effort for the DHHS using our commercial solutions opening portal of about $305 million worth of increased medical capacity expansion in the United States. And now we're partnering with a trade organization called the International Society of Pharmaceutical Engineers, ISPE, and working with Admiral Jawa in DHHS. And we're looking at even providing policy recommendations on how to expand U.S. reshoring for the longer term. And so really exciting work across the board. And over a very short amount of time, we've been able to not only award all those contracts, but uh, fully negotiate them as well. The mind boggles when you consider extrapolating all that out, how on a per annum basis, this is just many, many fold increase in the rate of production of all that type of equipment. And I know you were dealing with a lot of medical industry people, but we also know the stories of companies who retooled and adapted and were producing things like ventilators who were not in that business before. So it's just an incredible story of rapid response and the adaptation. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what U.S. Air Force resources and tools were particularly noteworthy? Well, I think, um, I think a lot of people would say some of, our, some of our innovative tools, contracting tools, were, I would say, foreign to most of the federal government. But once we were able to show how to use them, they really caught wildfire. And so, for example, our portal that we use that was initially the Air Force's portal, and then we just uh, handed it over and allowed the JADF and the rest of the federal government to use it. That portal has, as I said before, 3,700 responses in that portal from the medical industry with whom we had not worked at all prior to this starting. So that was used to do a lot of what we call requests for information. And so it created a vibrant marketplace of information for the Air Force, for the JADF, for the DHHS, for FEMA where literally there was a lot of learning going on in between what industry capabilities really are beyond the usual suspects and the existing supply chains and really understanding a lot of new ideas. One really cool example that came out of that, in that portal, we found an idea on how to move much faster with testing rather than just relying on nasal pharyngeal swab testing, which was the standard at the time. PCR testing. There were four people, uh, PhDs, that had gotten together with funding from a venture capital firm uh, with a new idea for oral swab testing. And we found that idea in our LOE4 rapid portal. And we quickly evaluated their supply chain, their funding, their ability to scale. And we found that that was a capability that could scale nationally. And 
we moved that from LOE-4 Rapid to the LOE-1 Relief Team. And our Air Force Rapid Capabilities Office took that program on and literally scaled it from four employees to over 1,500 employees. And now they are supplying literally hundreds of thousands and millions of tests to five states uh, that I'm aware of, the Department of Homeland Security, and across the Department of Defense. And so it's a really incredible story. And the supply chain is something that we would call in the Air Force an orthogonal supply chain. So instead of relying on China or overseas locations, and instead of relying on the supply chains that were so stressed from the existing suppliers, none of the supplies that go into this use the same sources. And so from the U.S., Canada, and Costa Rica made up all the sources of the supplies for this particular test, and the testing lab resources were not redundant or were not overlapping either. And so we were able to create a testing capability for the nation literally out of nothing in a way that did not stress any of the existing testing resources that were so vital and necessary. And so that was uh, definitely a tool that was, that was used by everybody. And then our commercial solutions opening tool was probably another very innovative approach where we go through a three spiral process very, very rapidly with industry by asking open-ended questions we call areas of interest. And when industry comes in with white papers, they don't have to know any government forms. They don't have to know government processes or government contracting. They literally just write the ideas down on a white piece of paper and they can get it to us in our portal. And then working with the JADF leads, we can rapidly get those to be evaluated anywhere in the federal government to include DHHS. And so we use that to great effect. Uh, as I speak right now, we're off of one of those commercial solutions opening. We're awarding over $300 million in contracts right now as I speak. So impressive, this litany of accomplishments. It sounds like it's been transformative to the defense industrial base. Back a couple of beats when you were talking about how there was less reliance on China and a removal of redundancy in the supply chain, if I'm tracking with you correctly. Right. Well, so as DLA was buying from all of the existing suppliers, we did not want to compete with their supply chains. We, we wanted to use the Air Force's skill set in acquisition to actually develop new sources and orthogonal supply chains that do not stress any of those existing supply chains. And so the ability for us to rapidly exploit our tools to get that done I think was really a, a huge part of the game-changing nature of what we accomplished and are still accomplishing, frankly. And let's remember, we are still in the fights. So the Air Force Task Force is still expanding uh, medical industry capacity on U.S. soil right now. And we are looking to do that for the longer term by providing some really good policy recommendations up the chain for pharmaceutical reshoring long term. Yes. Yeah, so what you've explained so far is really just a snapshot to date, and the success will continue, this expansion that you're describing. How did the Air Force's role as executive agent for the Defense Production Act come into play? Yeah, so um, many people didn't really even understand what the Defense Production Act was prior to the coronavirus, but the Defense Production Act has been around for a long time. In fact, the last major use of the Defense Production Act was back in World War II. 
Now, that is to say that we still do use it. And in fact, the Air Force, as the executive agent for the department, has a unique skill set and a unique ability to do industry capacity expansion efforts under DPA Title III. And we have an office that does that. Of course, they were not a very big office uh, because the department only spent around 40 to $50 million a year in Defense Production Act projects. When this hit, I think the administration and the president quite rightly decided that the Defense Production Act needed to be invoked in a almost a wartime fashion. And uh, with the Congress's help, that's exactly what happened. And a billion dollars was allocated. Early on in the fight, we were using that money towards uh, medical capacity expansion efforts. Um, And then we switched to using more broadly CARES Act funding for medical capacity expansion, and we kept that going while we started to use the DPA Title III funds to make sure that the the, uh, defense industrial base health was maintained and that capabilities of our defense industrial base that were threatened by COVID-19, that we focused projects that were targeted in that way. And so a lot of good work. It wasn't the JADF that oversaw the, the DIB health side of it. The OSD stood up another body called the Industrial Base Council to oversee that effort. So my Air Force task force answered to the JADF for all the medical efforts, and then we answered to the Industrial Base Council for all of our uh, DIB health efforts on behalf of the department. Now, projecting beyond the current crisis episode that we're in right now, what aspects of the JADF model do you foresee enduring beyond the present? Well, as you know, Anthony, the the JADF model has been transitioned to the uh, Joint Rapid Acquisition Council, or JRAC, and um, they've stood up a portion of the JRAC uh, called the Defense Assisted Acquisition Cell. And so the JADF now is really the Defense Assisted Acquisition Cell. And I think that was actually a very good transition to move it into a more enduring capability where in the JRAC, Brent Ingraham and his folks are very used to handling urgent operational needs and then working with the service acquisition arms, the services and agencies to actually rapidly execute those needs. And so it's a good fit. And we've seen a lot of good work already done by the DA2 cell. And the communications have not skipped a beat. In fact, frankly, they've even matured further so that now there is even a higher level of collaboration um, between OSD, the Air Force, and DHHS as we continue our efforts forward. As I mentioned to you, I do think there is opportunity here. I think there's opportunity to use some of the models that we use for DISCA support, for defense support of civil agencies, and recognize that we could, again, have to at some point stand up a very robust wartime-like capability to do acquisition for the whole nation out of DOD, either in support of DHHS or in support of other federal agencies beyond FEMA. And I think if we, uh, if we have a more habitual relationships and exercise those relationships, we'll be uh, more capable and ready to respond than we were this time. So I imagine with moving so quickly 
creating many things so quickly. It wasn't always a smooth road. Are there any lessons learned that will impact the way we do contracting and acquisition in the future? Yeah, Anthony, that's a great question. And I think the answer is resoundingly yes. And I would say, let me uh, take it from two perspectives. One is from the overall acquisition perspective. And then and then secondarily, I'll talk specifically to the contracting side. So from an acquisition perspective, I think the use of a wartime task force mentality uh, and construct, uh, certainly uh, within the Air Force, when we stood up this acquisition task force, that was exactly our model. In fact, I modeled it very, very similar to how we've done a lot of plans for any kind of PACOM war plan scenario. And so we use those lessons learned in this. And I think that one of the things that we've learned in our acquisition enterprise within the Air Force is that if you want to drive results really, really fast, you cannot rely on large peacetime bureaucracies to get that done. You just cannot do it. Yeah, one of the things we've learned from an acquisition perspective is if you want results really fast, you cannot rely on peacetime bureaucracies to get that done. You just can't do it. Now, the decision to stand up a, a wartime task force kind of mentality should be measured because the expense in resources is really high. However, what we have driven is something I think that is much more powerful than unity of command and stovepiped organizations. And we have driven unity of effort. And unity of effort applied to a peacetime acquisition setting can be quite powerful and can accelerate results to really lightning speed. And so that's one tool that I think we should leave in the toolbox and use as appropriate, even in peacetime settings. Moving to the contracting side of the discussion, I think uh, our ability to use the existing, what I'll call an antiquated Cold War system, you know, our, our current contracting system was created back in the 80s. And although there's been many attempts to update it, uh, they've all failed, in my opinion. And it's optimized for the Cold War. Back in the Cold War, the government was the biggest buyer. And so we had an advantage that way. Now, we are not. We are the smallest customer in many very big commercial markets now. And so the majority of American industry wouldn't even think about doing business with the government. And so we really need to update our rule set. But until we do, I've basically incited violence in 8,000 Air Force contracting officers to go hack our system and find ways of putting together new tools in contracting that are compliant, but at the same time, innovative and don't worry about the what I'll call the DC recrimination culture because it's never been done, it can't be done. We take an opposite view. If it's never been done, maybe we ought to try it. And so we are driving a lot of very innovative tools that are very, very fast and emulate a commercial marketplace, even within an antiquated Cold War system. And so our contracting officers in the Air Force are great at hacking that system. And I love them, I'll tell you. They're just amazing people, and they're doing a great job with it. But I hope that the, some of those tools endure. 
Yeah. So rather than wait for that antiquated system to change, you're just, again, to use your term, you're hacking it, you're changing it as you uh, see the opportunity and need. I guess it's a little bit like the expression of begging forgiveness later, but it sounds like you're not waiting for this old Cold War era system to change. You have to move forward somehow. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact is the federal acquisition regulation as it's written today, it basically says that in part one. It says if it's not specifically prohibited, then it is allowed subject to good business judgment. And we are stretching that to its absolute limits. And we're doing so unapologetically because we have to in response to great power competition. And in this example, in response to the coronavirus, I hope that kind of attitude endures. And I hope it spills over into thinking in new ways about how we actually resource the department's capabilities, because that is the opposite. You know, if it's not written down that you can, then you can't. And we really have to take a different view, in my view, of opening up and expanding our ability to move quickly in the appropriations process, which needs a lot of work. Now, this is a broad question, but who or what was most integral to your success? Well, I mean, it, it always comes back to people, Anthony. I mean, it really does. Uh, you know, I look at um, the teamwork we eventually developed with the JADF and the teamwork we eventually developed with the DHHS. And then looking internally into our Air Force acquisition enterprise, I mean, literally almost 600 people that are literally working two jobs, uh, two full-time jobs to do all the acquisition that the Air Force needs them to do within a really silly system of expiring funds every year. And at the same time, since mid-March, spending $5 billion they didn't intend to spend at the beginning of the year, and we're not resourced to do so. Yet these people worked nights and weekends around this task force to respond to our national emergency. And boy, did they do a fantastic job. And so really the success begins and ends, not in the Pentagon, not in the JADF, not even in my task force leadership, but really those people across the country and around the world that are working two jobs in responding to all these acquisition needs and doing a fantastic job of it. So they are the ones who deserve all the credit, frankly. It's been an astounding effort. When you look at it from a leadership perspective, what have you learned through this? Um, you know, from a leadership perspective, I would offer a couple of thoughts. One is I already alluded to, which is learning to use new organizational designs in an innovative way that drive unity of effort and drive a sense of urgency, even while you are operating in a peacetime function, for lack of a better way to describe it. The power of unity of effort as opposed to just unity of command is really something I have taken away from this from a leadership perspective. And frankly, in the military, as we grow leaders, we grow leaders to think in terms of stovepipes, to think in terms of their own unity of command. We don't teach behaviors in leadership very well that are unity of effort, looking sideways and being comfortable that interdependence is really required to get to results. And you can't do it within each command separately. Just not enough resources to do that. And then from the people side, 
I've learned this lesson, I guess, many times, but I still am staggered by how much people will give when you just ask them to. When you help them understand why, and not just tell them what to do, but help them to understand why it's important, and then let them show you the how. And then I tell them, don't underestimate my ability to say yes when you show me the how. And just watching people make these tasks their own, it's really just quite incredible what Americans can accomplish when we get together around a common cause. Yeah, the creativity is astounding that you had witnessed. So I'm sure you're very proud as a leader to have seen all that dedication that you described and the people working in common cause for their nation, for the health of their neighbors. Like you said, this is a war being waged right here for the benefit of our families and neighbors. I want to thank you for your time today. My guest has been Major General Cameron Holt. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Anthony. It's been fun. Thank you for listening. For more resources, visit the Defense Acquisition University online at dau.edu.